0: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
2: It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And...
1: I'm Katie Richard, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Mike had to miss out on this week's show. He is fine. He is absent. He will be back. But we have a lot to talk about. We've replaced him with both Nicholas Holt and Patti Lapone, which I think we can all agree is the combination of people we all would have picked to replace Mike, um, given all the choices of anybody in the world.
4: If you add them together, I think they do yeah. create Mike. <laughs>
1: they, they do equal the uh, the singing prowess, the talent of, of Mike Hogan. We will have interviews with both of them, Nicholas Holt talking about The Great and Patti Lapone talking about uh, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood on Netflix. Um, that'll be in the back half of the show. Before that, we have our rewatch of Cabaret, which is our um, the final of our rewatch series about acting winners so don't worry we're going to keep doing rewatches but this is a supporting actor pick we had um and then before that we've got various things other things to watch to talk about i kind of keep tricking myself into thinking that all of hollywood is still on pause because there's no box office receipts and there's no big movies but there's a lot of stuff out there to talk about um that you guys were really eager to get into and maybe just because it's the thing that i've seen and i want to choose um you want to talk about the great yeah, I thought
5: it was extraordinary. I loved it. I didn't think I would dislike it. I just thought that I would only like it, but I absolutely loved it. It was a, uh, it was an incredible time uh, in Russia. You know, so the premise of the Great is it's about. The future Empress of Russia, Catherine the Great, coming to uh, the Russian court uh, and meeting her uh, fairly useless husband, uh, Peter the Not-So-Great, and deciding to overthrow him and and the long journey that it takes to get her there and the various conflicts on the way. She is played by Elle Fanning. Nicholas Holt plays her husband. They are both extraordinary. Like, Nicholas Holt is great and everything. But this is, like, a next-level greatness from him. And then this is actually the first thing... Kevin Fallon from The Daily Beast was sort of tweeting about it. It's what kind of pushed me over the edge to see it. Because I've always had, a like, a slight reserve on Elle Fanning. Like, I've never fully been able to... Like, I've never felt that she's fully, fully inhabited a role as completely as I did in this one there was just nothing standing between her and this role she's fantastic in it there's a lot of wit um a lot of uh humor and uh it and it's just gorgeous it looks so expensive and lavish and gorgeous and um just a fun a fun fine time uh in the in the courtly intrigue was my experience with the great
1: yeah I, it's interesting that you had a reserve on Elle Fanning since I feel like I guess I can't think of like one role she's had that I've been like, holy cow. But like, she's always been so like prepossessed and good. Um, And it felt like she, you know, stepped right into this exactly the way that I would have expected her to.
5: Well, I I just think that maybe up until now, she's been like a little too young for how prepossessed she is. And so it comes off as precocious, maybe a little bit in some of her performances, whereas this just felt uh, unmannered and fully, fully there.
4: Um, one thing about not going to film festivals and uh, this year it, that I know, have noticed um, that the great somewhat makes up for is that in recent years, you go to film festivals like Cannes and Toronto, and you just feel like you're spending a, a whole season with Elle Fanning because she's been in so much <laughs> stuff in just a short amount of time. But a lot of that stuff I find brings up a question of gaze like how she's being looked at in the film, how she's being, you know, kind of utilized in the film. It sometimes feels, it's not leering exactly in, in various movies, but I'm thinking about something like the Neon Demon, the Nicholas Winding Refn film where she plays an aspiring model in a kind of very dark movie. And yeah, I guess she she is the center of that film and it's about her, but like there's something kind of off about the way that she is kind of framed in it. What's refreshing about the, what I've seen of The Great, which is about six episodes, is that There's a real autonomy there. There's a real um, sense of agency and um, purpose beyond being a sort of aesthetic object, I guess, that is meant to kind of reflect the intent of the filmmaker. Um, And I think that's a really exciting development for her as a performer. And I think she rises to the occasion and then some. Um, It's the first time in a while that I've really felt like I've got to know her as an actor rather than as just a mere screen presence.
5: I agree. Um, and and I was remiss in, in sort of my first uh, gush, not mentioning Tony McNamara, who's sort of the executive producer mastermind behind this and is best known as probably the screenwriter. He's an Australian playwright, best known as the screenwriter of The Favourite. And so, you know, it, that tone of The Favourite is very much uh, at play here. This is based on a play he wrote about Catherine the Great that he had long been thinking about turning into a film, but he was like, but there's just so much... Time. Um, actually, like Peter and Catherine were married, I think it's less than a year before the overthrow. <laughs> um, but you do want that time for her to really find her footing. I think it would be. Uh, like less of an enjoyable ride to watch this very young person come to court and immediately, you know, topple it. But her her stumbles along the way, I think make what happens in the end feel that much uh, stronger. So,
4: yeah. I was going to say just about the Tony McNamara thing. Um, if 10 hours of The favorites tone sounds exhausting, I don't blame you because it sounded exhausting to me as well. Um, but but the, the series finds a way to like, temper, the, the arch weirdness um, that McNamara kind of puts front and center in his writing a lot of the time, um, so that when it does happen, it feels f- still fresh, you know, sex episodes in. And, and so I think they, they find a, the show finds a good balance between being that sort of wry, somewhat anachronistic humor, and the actual, you know, vague historicity of, of the actual story.
1: And I think it really benefits from having uh, kind of these showcase scenes here and there, which I think The Favorite had as well, where, especially where you have Nicholas Holt and Elle Fanning, like, really getting to go toe-to-toe against each other. And, like, not just in this this antagonistic way, but, like, they're kind of, like, have, learning to have respect for each other and some level of affection for each other, even though she also hates him and is going to overthrow him. It's got this, like, this heft to it. Um, so it's not just, like, running around throwing out curse words, although Nicholas Holt is incredible at running around and throwing out curse words.
5: Yeah, there there is there's an emotional way to it, which I think The Favorite has as well, but you're right, Richard, there's not enough space in The Favorite for all of that um to really sink in and and this like definitely has has room for it. It's interesting. I was trying to figure out why the slight anachronisms of this work so much better for me than the anachronisms of something like Dickinson, the Emily Dickinson thing that came out on Apple TV last year. And I think it's because it's it's sparing, and it's used. In, it's used in a similar way that, like uh, Sophia Coppola's *Marie Antoinette* was used, in, in terms of helping you understand the youth and or the callowness of of these various characters while not fully taking you out of this world so are they using modernisms occasionally but like then someone will say something like you're the you've, you're the cat's bed clothes you always have been you know what i mean so it's not like you're the cat's pajamas whatever it's you're the cat's bed clothes and so you just feel like you feel like you're watching something that's been translated <laughs> and like <laughs> in a good way and uh i don't know it just re- it really works for me so
1: yeah it's uh, all the episodes are on hulu now right it- it's one of those things yes. to drop out once okay yeah so uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there i mean we've been talking about tv here and there but i i was i've been realizing kind of the incredible number of things and joanna i think you pointed out that between like mrs america normal people the great and high fidelity like fx and hulu in particular have had a good run this spring so a lot to catch up on for me at least
5: Yeah, my favorite stuff has been on Hulu or FX on Hulu. And, um, you know, that usually HBO is like the king and then everyone else is sort of like nipping at the heels. But this feels like a real real time for this collaboration, you know, which we, we were all sort of wondering how it would work. Uh, this is, you know, this is a, a side effect of the Disney acquisition of Fox. Is FX on Hulu, and um, you know, uh, it's a coalescing of of quality uh, into one platform, uh, which is sort of the ideal marriage of of business and art, I suppose. The other person I want to shout out in the great, um, and he was also in Normal People, is Sebastian D'Souza, who's a who's a he plays Catherine's lover, and he's a an actor that i had never seen before these two shows and he plays very different characters in the two shows and he, he's got a small role in normal people but it, you know it shows some range and it shows real real talent and so i just think it's a really it's a nice spring for him a good introduction to this actor who i had never seen before so
4: Phoebe Fox is great, too, as uh, Catherine's, um, you know, once a lady of court, now demoted to servant, um, who in some ways the brains behind the operation. I mean, Catherine is as well. But uh, it's a great dynamic between two characters who um, might not otherwise have that kind of richness of interaction in something that was a bit more traditionally, period.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, where should I hear? There's also movies in the world, uh, other than the <laughs> yeah. decades-old ones we have been doing in our rewatch series. So, uh, as our film critic, please catch us up on what's out there.
4: Well, we're just going to keep talking about stuff the Brits are sending over because I don't know what the Americans are up to. But um, yeah, there are two movies that I reviewed this week. The first being Military Wives, which was a film that was at Toronto Film Festival last year. Um, it's from the director, Peter Catania, who broke big 25 years ago with The Fulmonti. Monty um, and has not really done a ton of films since then. This is his kind of return to like the British working-ish class feel good movie um based on a true story about uh, the wives and girlfriends of soldiers de- british soldiers deployed abroad who created uh, a choir on on base and their choir took their sort of journey all the way to a big concert in London. Um, and they got a number one Christmas single, not a Christmas song, but the UK does a thing where they try to get kind, not a novelty song exactly, but maybe a novelty song number one on Christmas day. Like we see in the film love actually. I love um, that that's
1: a real thing. It's in love actually. It always feels made up.
4: It's a real thing in a way that like the radio is still very big in Britain in a way it's not quite uh, in uh, the United States. Anyway, so it's based on a true story, and there's a lot of material to mine there between uh, that, you know, really kind of interesting journey from, from you know, kind of just quaint little choir to do, to occupy time while people are are fighting abroad, to national prominence. But there's also all the sort of interior lives of these women um, living on base. I don't think the film, unfortunately, lives up to any of that promise. Um, I think it's kind of thin in a weird way. Um, you know, coming from a grand tradition of uplifting British films, which there are many of, of you know, different themes and, and tones and all that, this is kind of a lesser entry. The one good thing, Unimpeachably about it, I think is uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, who is the lead uh, as a the colonel's wife who gets involved um, because she's uh, dealing with a, a particular uh, grief and needs something to occupy her mind. And it's just a really great installment in the long history of Kristen Scott Thomas playing reserved women who who secretly have you know r- huge reservoirs of emotion just beneath the surface. Um, so you know, if you're a Kristen Scott Thomas completist, I would say seek it out. Otherwise. Uh, I say in my review, you could just go watch Pride or something else that's also British and feel good and feels a bit better than this.
1: I have been thinking about Kristen Scott Thomas, though, because she popped up in a season two of Fleabag for like one scene, basically or maybe two scenes. and was so good. And, you know, you can't blame a woman who I guess she's probably in her 50s um, for stepping away from acting roles for all the reasons we know of that um, the industry treats older women horribly. But every time she shows back up, you want more of her.
4: Yeah, she's a real pro, and you can see that pro quality in in Military Wives. Um, And I should say that her co-star in the film is Sharon Horgan the Irish writer-director behind things like Catastrophe and other shows, both um, overseas, in, in, in the UK and Ireland and, and uh, you, the US. Um, and her, she's good in the movie, but her role is sort of less substantial and um, uh, they don't really flesh out her side of things as, as much. But, um, you know, they're good together and it's a kind of interesting pairing that you might not otherwise expect. Um, you know, this comedy star and this, you know, uh, actress of, of, like, big, you know, prestige period drama. So it's interesting from those merits, you won't necessarily regret watching it. It's just not, um, it's, it's, it's slight in a way that I kind of wasn't wanting uh, right now when I really wanted something that felt very, you know, holistically uplifting.
1: Yeah. You, for the bar for me, at least right now for something like slight and enjoyable is pretty low. So if it doesn't clear that, then Fair. maybe.
6: <laughs>
1: um, but then how about the trip yeah. to Greece, which feels like it might also have some of the same uh, power to it.
4: Yeah, so the trip to Greece is, I guess, it's sort of official, the conclusion of this quadrilogy that Steve Coogan, uh, Rob Brighton, and the director Michael Winterbottom have been doing for about 10 years now. They air as a series in the UK, and then they kind of get condensed into films to be shown around the world. But the conceit is pretty simple. It's Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon playing versions of themselves who've been sent on assignment to go to really nice restaurants, whether it's in the Lake District of England or in Italy or France or, or Spain, rather. Or in this most recent iteration, Greece. And they just kind of do their impressions of Michael Caine and Mick Jagger and various other people. They eat beautiful food in beautiful locations. And then, usually in the movie, some sneaky sense of, I don't know, existential malaise seeps in by the end. And that is very true of The Trip to Greece, uh, which is just as enjoyable as the other three films in terms of watching these two talented, if a little bit vain and ridiculous, actor comedians just riff with each other. That's that's always fun. This one, though, I guess it's fitting that they're in Greece, does trend more explicitly toward tragedy in, in, in still a very subtle Michael Winterbottom-y way, but... It was kind of a bummer to watch, I'll be honest, um, both for the interior um, story in the film, but also just like sitting in my apartment. I, I watched Trip to Spain to kind of refresh myself before watching the screener of Trip to Greece. And just spent, so spending about four hours with these two guys going to beautiful restaurants in fabulous locations around Europe um, while I was in my bedroom um, in Brooklyn with probably no immediate or even remote plans to go anywhere like that for a long time, uh, it was a bit of a bummer to, to kind of, I don't know, feel that gap, I guess. but. But anyway, if you're gonna if if you're invested in the in the series, um, you, you got to watch this, and 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 it's I think a worthy conclusion if it is indeed a conclusion. There are lots more wonderful places they could go in subsequent movies, but um, if this if if this is the end, um, just like uh, the before trilogy ended in Greece, hmm. um, I think the trip to Greece um pulls it off.
1: Civilization began in Greece. Trilogies and or quadrilogy <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, as promised, our rewatch this week in our Essentials series, we went back to the Best Supporting Actor winning performance by Joel Gray in Cabaret, uh, which is a movie that won a whole slew of other Oscars, but famously not Best Picture. I. I might have mentioned this last week that I watched this last year in kind of preparation for Fossy verdon which is a series that uh we talked about throughout the spring last year. Um, but when kind of bowled over by it all over again, re-watching it just a year later. Um, this movie holds up in a way that I don't think I ever quite expect because of how famous Cabaret is and how many times it's been done. I've seen it on Broadway in two different iterations. It's uh, oh it's almost fifty years old the movie. The musical is fifty years old, but um Man, this is really quite a movie. Would you would, you guys agree with me? Cabaret Good? Yeah, I mean Cabaret great. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh,
5: it just feels it feels very modern despite you know, the movie being decades old and then the story being even older. There's just something about it because it's just so dark and sexy and dangerous and all of that sort of stuff it just I feel I feel like it always feels right on the cutting edge of something Mm -hmm. that's that's my those are my cabaret feelings for sure
4: You know, I got a dissent here. Um, I think this is the first film that we've watched in our rewatch series or our first watch series, whatever we want to call it, uh, depending on the movie, um, that didn't kind of live up to it. I mean, I'd seen the movie before in college with all my, you know, dorky theater friends. Um, So it had been, you know, 15, 16 years since I'd seen it. Um, And I don't know, something about it felt smaller than I remembered. Hmm. Um, And maybe it's because the memories of the Sam Mendes stage production which was revived just a couple years ago in New York uh, with Michelle Williams and Emma Stone. Um, You know, they played Sally Bowles at different times, obviously. Maybe that was just too fresh in my mind. But something about the movie version of it, I think, didn't make me feel like this was taking place at the end of the world in the way that the stage show does. Hmm. Um, and I, I kind of was missing that, and maybe that's just the mood I'm in. There's so much to like about this film, to love about this film, from its performances to its aesthetics, but I, I didn't feel as gut-punched uh, as I, I did at the end of the stage show, I guess.
1: There is something about the staginess of the stage show, like the way, you know, I... Saw it in 1998 when it was Alan Cumming and it had been Natasha Richardson. She was long gone by then. Um, and the the memory of the very end when it reveals the orchestra and there's nobody there anymore. And like the way that like, it you know, kind of faces you with the rise of Nazism really bluntly. Like the, the movie doesn't have that because you know, in some ways it's a movie, like it's presenting these musical numbers as kind of diegetic and not, no one's breaking out into song outside of the Kit Kat club for the most part. Um, so it's not going to have those like huge moments of, of transition, but I think maybe the smallness of it, like the intimacy of this story of uh, you know kind of this love triangle at the middle of it, like, and then also there's a whole the sub subplot about like the Jewish woman who wants to marry the um, man who's not Jewish. Um, there's something about like the humanity of it it kind of trans transitions into that more than the like grander statements of that stage show.
4: Yeah, and the end of the film, um, you know, credit to best director winner Bob Fosse, like. It's pretty startling to have a musical movie end with complete silence. Yeah, you know the credits and roll. A swastika. <laughs> we have, the, yeah, we have this blurry picture of a Nazi in the audience with a, a very visible swastika arm, armband. You know, we've just had this riot of noise with the kind of reprise of Wilkumen, Um, and then Joel Grey basically says goodbye, and what is he saying goodbye to? I think that's a pretty loaded moment. So the film does have that potency. I think I just missed it. I, I wanted it to be threaded more throughout, I mm-hmm. guess. You obviously have these pops of realization of when exactly this story is taking place, but I think the film gets a little too caught up in the literalness of the love affairs. Whereas I think they're just supposed to kind of show how so much that seemed to matter right before hell broke loose kind of didn't in the grand sweep of things, but it did at the same time. So I don't know. And I think, honestly, I think part of my problem with not feeling that emotional tension for a lot of the film had to do with Liza Minnelli, mm. um, where I think she's great in the movie, but I don't think she's cast right as Sally Bowles. I think she's too young. I think she has too much kind of spunkiness and moxie. I think Sally Bowles is supposed to be a little broken down, a little more pathetic, a little a little older. You know, she's not supposed to be a great singer, I don't think. She's wasting away this Weimar nightclub. I, I, I think that she brings this kind of let's put on a show energy to the movie that the, the story doesn't really require, or, or actually kind of suffers from in a weird way
5: yeah it is it is challenging to think of like maybe this time I'll win being applied to someone as young as hmm. Elis Minnelli how old is she um, in this movie
1: she's like early 20s
4: she's like 26 I think yeah.
1: 25 yeah she's young yeah no I mean I, I
5: don't think I disagree with that Richard I think I think some of your criticisms uh stand I just still I think maybe it's because I saw this film and I have never seen like a I think I've seen Maybe a touring production of Cabaret, but, you know, if I had ever seen Alan Cumming do it on the stage live, I'm sure I, too, would be like, "What? what is this? That being said, Joel Grey, I mean, I would never take his Oscar away from him for this because he's so creepy and entertaining at the same time. It's just fantastic. Um, but because i don't have like a real i think honestly i think i only ever saw it in my college and i don't have like a really good stage production to compare it to so i only have this which i saw when i was really young and it scared me because it was so dark and maybe that just sort of has stuck with me and the iconic chair dance stuff like all the fossy stuff that's in this it's it's hard to separate that out from the musical the the like the iconic imagery of this film, like it it deserves to be recognized, I think. Um, And like, we've seen a million stage imitations of bowler hats and chair dances and and Fosse and all that sort of stuff like that. But this is like, this is the ur text of it, you know what I mean? And, um, and that matters, I think.
1: I thought a lot about Joel Gray watching this just because, you know, that's technically why we're talking about it. And like, I, like I said, I saw the, um, the Mendy's version um, and like had listened to like the Alan Cumming version recording over and over and over again when I was a pretentious high schooler Um, and so that's like the familiar one I have I had seen the movie and like the Joel Grey one always seemed like sillier and not as dark as Alan Cumming has this whole like sexy MC thing um but I really I came around appreciating it this time not only because he's like so creepy and also like you watch that performance he's just giving so much like the variety of the numbers that he's doing um it's like funny and weird um but also like what a trailblazer like that role like the Alan Cumming version couldn't exist if Joel Grey hadn't done that first and especially for 1972 like there are just a lot of things I was looking at like thinking about this being three years after Stonewall and the amount of like boundaries this film is willing to push and like Fosse being a straight director like I don't really know what this film's role is in like gay cinema history but it is it does still feel cutting edge in that way that we were talking about in the beginning
4: I I think that's something I really admire about Gray's performance in the film Um, also the way that Fosse kind of uses the MC character is that he is just Setting the stage, they don't try to like humanize him. they don't try to give him his own kind of internal narrative. He's just the the voice of this feeling of this moment of this era. And I think that's really effectively used in the film. and I think it's really this might be kind of high praise to overly high praise, but it's 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 admirable that the academy at the time saw the value in that kind of performance. That mm-hmm. it wasn't that they didn't need to connect to something emotionally with the MC character, who's not even named. Um, they could just appreciate both the technical skill that Gray brought to it, but also the the textual way that that it really supports the film's ideas. And and I I kind of prefer the gray Fosse read on it than I than the Mendes coming read on it, because it it feels more grounded in the Weimar era. Um, in terms of its aesthetic and its its tone, I should point out, by the way, that when I said I saw the Sonia Mendes production, I saw Michael C. Hall and Gina Gershon do it. I did not see Alan coming. <laughs> what a Did you see Alan <laughs> coming? I went on a high school trip the
1: second go round with um, Michelle Williams.
4: <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did see that. But, um, but yeah, I think I think that Joel Gray really stands out in the film as, as as being so true to the intent of the piece in a way that maybe Linnelli didn't really work for me. Um, I find Michael York a little too milk toast, maybe, but I know that's the character. But, um, but yeah, Joel Grey is unimpeachably uh, on exactly the right wavelength throughout the film
5: the context of, of the Oscars this year, right, is that this is also the Godfather year. The Godfather wins Best Picture, Bob Fosse wins Director, um, and then Joel Grey, I mean, I think a narrative, and I don't like to do this because once again, it like feels like I'm diminishing his win and I'm not, but I think a narrative around his win is the fact that he's in the category with James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Anne Al Pacino all running and supporting for The Godfather, and this idea <laughs> this that... This is so <laughs> crazy that this was the same
1: year, it's crazy!
5: <laughs> that they split the vote, and 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 so I think I think this year, honestly, is a year where uh, that award strategists point to to talk about strategic nominations. We're going to put this actor in this category. and, and and it's his their co-stars are not allowed to run because they'll lessen the likelihood that this person will win. You know, like pick your pick your horse, don't let every horse in the race, sort of thing. But also The Godfather uh, is such
1: a mess because like Brando wins actor, but Al Pacino is actor. in support. It's so yeah. weird. Like you can't there's just too many people in The Godfather. You can't get around it. It's
4: true. Brando wins actor does not appear to accept the award. Isn't this um, the is Little
1: Littlefeather year? Yeah.
4: Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Also, with Cabaret I was looking up kind of some Oscar stats about it. Um this is a pretty readily available one, so I didn't do much digging, but um Cabaret holds the record for the most nomination no, for the most Oscar wins without a Best Picture win. It won 8 Oscars uh That's including so Best Director, Best Actress, Oscars. Best Supporting Actor, it did not win Best. But also something I was curious about was thinking about Joel Grey winning Best Supporting Actor for a musical and I was like, "Okay, surely there has to be some total crazy imbalance between women nominated and winning Oscars for musicals versus men. And actually it's somewhat even nine women have won either supporting or best actress for a musical and seven men. have. Huh. So throughout, but most of the men are early in Hollywood in Oscar history where the women are, you know, kind of like from 1930s through the sixties, whereas the women are much more spread out all the way up to Emma Stone. Um, yeah. I'm trying but, um, to think of who the it, last yeah. man
1: was to win an Oscar for a musical like Plenty of nominations, but it's been a while. I
4: mean, legit, I think it might have been gray.
1: Wow. Wow.
5: To
4: win. Yeah, I think that might be right. I mean, you know, I could have done better homework. Sorry, guys, but I was no, watching but- Military Wives. <laughs>
5: Um, I, I, I think what's also, um, interesting is I was like looking at the ceremony itself. Like you would think that in the year that Cabaret has all these nominations, Fosse's going to win, Liza wins, all this sort of stuff like that, that they would do a performance from Cabaret at the Oscars, but they didn't. Uh, they did like a musical salute to Disney, Michael Jackson saying something, Diane Carroll, Connie Stevens, but like get the... Get the chairs out on the stage and do the chair dance. I guess Cabaret. Cabaret
1: didn't have an eligible like, song, which is not something they would never do that now. They would have shoehorned some kind of new song in Cabaret to get that song nomination now. But, no, but I, I thought
4: it, they it did. Oh, yeah, really? maybe did. this time was not. Maybe oh, this yeah. time was not in the original stage show.
1: But now yeah. it is. It's been put back in. That's fa- I didn't know that.
5: Yes.
4: But it wasn't yeah. nominated.
5: <laughs>
1: That's crazy. It wasn't
5: nominated. They had actually. I think there's a few because like Money, Money, Money isn't that like different from the stage. But anyway, they had a few songs and yeah, it wasn't like the original song category. I guess it's like not what they were looking for an original song. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. I don't know how to explain. A song from the Poseidon Adventure one. What was going on with that? But um it's not. I mean, to be it, fair, yeah. like
4: th- the winner and best song that year was Leave the Cannoli. Um, and I think that James <laughs> Khan, like was so... <laughs> just such a beautiful kind of performance in that that it deserved to win
3: oh my
1: god is this why but i guess this is why the godfather 2 comes around like a couple years later and sweeps because it had uh it had some so much comp- the godfather had so much competition
5: maybe i don't like it's it's interesting to me like uh this this year this is a fascinating year and i love the joel gray one and like you know Duvall, Pacino, and Khan are fine. You know, like, they're fine. They've they've had great careers, so it's
1: fine. Yeah, because Godfather uh, 2, De Niro wins supporting actor, so kind of making – against two co-stars in Godfather 2, Michael Gazzo and Lee Strasberg, um, and Coppola wins director. So they kind of – they got the things they didn't get the first time around. I guess.
5: I mean, I, it's, it, it's interesting to me, and it's the ongoing – I think it's this ongoing – it reminds me of the, like, Shakespeare in Love – Saving Private Ryan thing or some other Oscar race we were recently discussing where it's like this idea... Oh, Scorsese losing to whom? I can't remember. We were talking about that. Yeah, yeah. This idea of like... The 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 male young gun '70s film canon and sort of or or Saving Private Ryan just sort of like the the manly movies and how they have like how they have fared and haven't and and how whenever they're slighted it's just considered such an injustice and um, I don't know I I like I love all those movies um, but I, I think that there is something very gendered about the way that we talk about some of these. Uh, wins and losses just in terms of like audience because obviously
1: like it's still always men winning these (laughs) these director (laughs) awards but you know um well that's something uh, fascinating about bob Vossi. like you know if you watch bossy burdner with the biography like he like could not stop sleeping with women like he was like this very like kind of macho guy in some ways in his life but was a dancer and made musicals and so like kind of stepped out of that cliche in a lot of his filmmaking
4: and I think watching Cabaret, you know, which was based on um, stories written by Christopher Isherwood, who was himself a gay man who moved to Berlin to live a more liberated gay lifestyle um, than was allowed him um, elsewhere. I, I was watching, you know, again for the first time in a long time, kind of waiting for, you know, my 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 head to turn and be a little annoyed by what Fosse kind of elided over or eliminated or whatever. But I think actually, all told. He does a good job. The movie does a good job of kind of mulling over what exactly Brian's sexuality might be. There is that moment of tension uh, or several moments of tension between, you know, him and the character's name. I'm now forgetting. Maximilian. You know, the third, the, the Maximilian. Thank you. The third leg in the triangle um, that's then interrupted by a, a, a Nazi twink singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Um <laughs> Which is also interesting in that that actor <laughs> is not the person singing. The, the kind of the, the, the lore from set is that the, the, the man, a Broadway performer who sang the song, didn't want to dye his hair blonde. So they had an extra sta- put on the, the costume and lip sync the song uh, wow. to the track of the guy who sang it. So it's kind huh. of a, a mystery of who that actual kid is. Um, but anyway, I think the movie for a 1972 film directed by a straight man, albeit one who is very steeped in the world of theater, thus a lot of gay stuff, it, it doesn't shy away from a lot of its implications, um, which I think a lesser movie would would and could do. It could just be this straight story with a few silly transvestites in the background and that's it. But I think the movie does you know, push the audience to consider... Uh, the reality of the moment and the reality of something as simple as Sally's saying to Brian, like, Oh, do you like boys? Okay, never mind. Sorry. We can just be friends. You know, that was, that's pretty, that's pretty bold even, you know, for 1972.
1: Yeah. I remember watching this in high school and getting to that scene where they're fighting over Maximilian and he says like, screw Maximilian. And she says, I do. And he says, so do I. And I was like, Holy shit, a movie can do that. It, uh, it definitely st- stood out to me at the time and still does. I think. Um, I think maybe the thing for me that was most different watching this, you know, a year after I last rewatched it is the whole sense of it happening. Richard, like you said, the apocalypse, but like at the end of something that you don't know is at the end and like living in our now completely wild time. Um, cause I think. It is proof that even if you think culture is moving forward, it is possible to step back. I think that's what the lesson of the Weimar Republic of Germany is and cabaret is about. And it's it was something, it's something that is easier and more difficult to know depending on where you are in your society. But right now, I think it's easy to imagine culture and society stepping back as a whole. Um, and I think that also made it have a stronger emotional impact this time.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, the idea that there can be this... Uh, you know, sort of hotbed of creative expression, sexual expression, identity expression that is then not entirely snuffed out, obviously, but 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 done a serious, serious blow by uh, the boot of authoritarian, you know, rigid, right wingy stuff. Um it's, it's 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 really tragic, you know. I mean, obviously there are myriad tragedies that emerged out of that time, um, this being just one of them, but they're all, you know, interconnected as the film shows as well. Uh, you know, and it does, yeah, it gives you pause to think about, I guess, in a way, if you wanted to look at it from a pretty narrow lens, like some of the ethos of the Obama era that was mm-hmm. all about look we made it we we passed through the membrane we have achieved a new level of progressiveness and openness in at least American society and of course that wasn't the reality at the time and it certainly was very strongly pushed against um, in 2016 and has been since so uh, and yet you know the creative spirit churns on uh, back then as it does now and um you know, so I guess there is some ray of hope to be to be gleaned from it, even though this movie, given all that comes after it, um, certainly ends on a pretty ha- harrowing uh, despairing note.
5: Right. And, uh, you know, worth remembering, uh, since Richard and I are sort of in the thick of it, covering the 70s over on the Still Watching podcast, that we are right smack dab in the middle of the Watergate scandal, right, when this comes out. And so those questions of what the 60s meant and then what the 70s meant directly after them, uh, you know, I think that people would be really interested to see that reflected uh, in this film.
1: So. And I also thought about how this movie is made, you know, not even 30 years after the end of World War II. And, you know, things had evolved back again to the point that a movie like Cabaret could be made, like after horrific losses, obviously. But it, it made me think about the pendulum of culture and how it can come back and forth, which is maybe a way to be optimistic about Cabaret is as dark as it is.
4: Yeah. And I think the movie offers two interesting perspectives on that. One being that's a little chastising of Sally and her ilk for treating it all so blithely, for not taking it, you know, for taking it for granted, for assuming mm-hmm. that life is just a cabaret, that it's all, oh, I'll leave a beautiful corpse, you know, I'll be laid out like a queen, whatever, you know. But I think it also celebrates that notion. It's like, well, yeah, this could all be taken away tomorrow. So why not live it up? Why not have a drink? Why not sleep with someone you want to sleep with, no matter who they are? You know, like, yeah. it's... it. I think it offers an interesting ambivalence about that, um, uh, which is probably the most realistic stance to take um, when faced with uh, the potential uh, annihilation of the sort of thing that you want to embody, I guess.
1: Good movie, Richard. Good movie. Uh Yeah, I mean, I've kind of talked myself
4: around on it in the past 20 minutes, I think. Um, I think I just wanted to feel really like, moved in a way that I wasn't. I was looking at it more sort of like intellectually, I guess, you know, or uh-huh. my version of that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's clearly like a very important movie. And I think for a musical adaptation that's put to film, you know, it doesn't try to kind of lighten the load. It doesn't kind of sort of gloss anything over it. it, it it's a dark musical adaptation, which, you know, uh, is, is, is rare now even.
5: Yeah, I I would encourage people, you know, even if they don't have it in them to watch all of Cabaret uh, right now, though you should. But if you haven't and you're like, "Uh, I'll never get to it. Go watch Mine Hair, which is Liza on the chair. Uh, It's on YouTube. You can go watch it uh, and just marvel at it. And just think about like something I love to think about with Bob Fosse is the way in which. His work, and, you know, I'm sure we talked about this a bit when we talked about some Fosse-Verdon stuff last year. The way in which his work just really sunk right into the groundwater of, like, our culture, Um, you know, you see it directly through Beyonce, through Michael Jackson, through all this other stuff. Like, these are all Fosse moves that we still are, you know doing it and like and once again the the mind hair dance has been sort of replicated so many times in so many different uh iterations that you kind of think this has always been there but it wasn't yeah and um and so yeah so go watch Eliza do that it's incredible so good
0: And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone.
3: Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries.
0: Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly and Odyssey Podcasts available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co/cardcalculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com LittleGoldMen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. HELP dot com slash little gold men.
1: So now we're going to move into the interview portion of the show. As mentioned, um, we're going to start with Nicholas Holt. We talked a lot about The Great, so I'm not sure how much more we need to talk about it, uh, except I, I do talk to him about The True History of the Kelly Gang, a movie that we talked about a week or two ago um, that's out on VOD now, where he plays a really great villain like he does in this one. And I asked him about you know the, the work he's been doing playing villains lately, which I think is really interesting. And something he kind of implied but didn't get into in detail that – I kind of imagine for myself it's like when you are a young and handsome actor I think you probably get offered a lot of really boring you know nice guy handsome guy roles and he has done a fascinating job of seeking out something different like from Mad Max and The Great and, and Tracer the Kelly Gang and The Favorite um so he was really interesting to talk to from uh, from his quarantine in Los Angeles and so let's listen to that now. Nicholas Holt, thank you for joining us on the podcast from your quarantine home. Um, you were just saying before we started recording, this round of press has been easy because I guess you've been doing it all from inside your house.
7: Yeah, it's been very easy. It's um, it's quite a different setup. I kind of like it. It means that you can kind of still juggle your everyday activities, but then I just disappear for an hour or two here and there and kind of and run this sort of Zoom setup, which um,
1: yeah.
7: I found, yeah, kind of easy. It's different. It's kind of, there's a, there's a lot of... Hoopla? Is that the right way of explaining press? I don't know, <laughs> that goes on around press with like going to these hotels oh, and this yeah. and that. There's a lot of things that kind of, now when it's very streamlined, you see a kind of a little bit unnecessary, I suppose, in some ways.
1: Yeah, you're not being dressed for anything. You're not being like shuttled in a big SUV to get from a hotel to a red carpet.
7: Yeah, there's not those, yeah, those time restrictions and like the kind of added additional things that aren't necessary, I suppose. So it's it's quite nice in a way. And I, I I'm not always... The most enthusiastic sometimes about press, <laughs> so <laughs> so it's meant that I've managed to limit it a little bit as well. So my publicist was laughing, saying that this is my this is my dream.
1: <laughs> were you working on anything like production wise when things shut down, or was this your only commitment for the spring?
7: Uh, no, I was actually I was in Italy, and we were we were about to start shooting Mission Impossible. Um,
1: right, right, right.
7: Yeah, in Venice. So that was, I, we were there, and then and then it kind of started to become apparent that things were getting pretty serious because they, they closed down the Venice carnival and then obviously clearly it was not a time to be starting production and that wasn't a possibility. So they, um, they shipped us all out and and we left fairly, fairly quickly.
1: Have you embraced zoom for work stuff beyond doing press or are you like otherwise just kind of holding up?
7: Beyond doing press, not, not, really no I've kind of I've switched off the work side of the brain to be honest with you I mean I say that I'm kind of it's an odd thing where I feel like I'm on pause I would suppose more
1: Mm -hmm. work-wise
7: where I'm like I'm trying to stay active and readying like physically in case that there's something that I need to be able to do like that and and mentally I'm kind of still kind of yeah ready to begin when and if I need it to be but at the same time I'm kind of I'm not actively pursuing new new things i suppose or like
1: yeah
7: or like trying to set up meetings with people via zoom and stuff like that i'm kind of like all right <laughs> let's enjoy enjoy the rest and the downtime and then but also kind of be ready be ready if suddenly someone is like hey we need you right now i don't know not that anybody ever <laughs> needs an actor like that <laughs>
1: uh okay we can talk about the great which uh i enjoyed really tearing through i think you've probably been hearing from other people that it's a it's a good quarantine binge watch um oh have you have you watched, did you watch grateful. did you manage to watch
7: all, all of them
1: yeah yeah i went through it and um and it's like it's both a good escape because you know it's great costumes and wigs and scenery and all this stuff and also maybe makes you glad you're not living in um 18th century russia and and dealing with all of that so so thank you for that combination of escapism and um and harsh reality
7: (laughs) good well thank you for watching yeah i'm glad, glad you enjoyed
1: um, so you, um, you talked to one of my colleagues for a feature that we did in a print edition of Vanity Fair a little while ago and um, said basically there was no historical research involved because it was such a crazy spin on history, but you know, you have to prepare in some way. So what was the prep for, for being Peter?
7: The the prep for being Peter was, I, I was kind of fortunate where, because I'd been in the favorite, I kind of got a glimpse into the preparation for that, that your nothing must put us through um for that we had two weeks of rehearsals and it was kind of that that core group of the cast in a room every day dancing together and and running scenes but whilst doing these other tasks whether it be dancing or humming in different tones depending on where people are pointing their fingers and walking in sync and like speed reads through as fast as we can and it was kind of more that's like classic
1: theater games right like that sounds like what you would you would learn as a theater warm-up
7: yeah, which I i mean, I haven't really done that much theatre and I, I, I didn't really particularly go to a, like a, uh, I mean, I went to a theatre school when I was a kid, but I didn't go to like a proper drama college or school when as an adult. So I, a lot of those things were kind of new to me and unexpected. But what I really enjoyed about that process was kind of the freedom it gave you and the this repetition in a way of, of making you know the text backwards and forwards and, and the rhythms of it and, and kind of put us all on a similar rhythm pattern I would say but also at the same time gave you complete freedom to kind of let the words do the, the work for you. Obviously Tony McNamara who wrote The Favourite wrote this as well and that's why I loved it so much reading it. I just think his his writing is so idios- idiosyncratic and, and funny and smart and witty but also has this really kind of not dark but kind of this hidden meaning and and emotion kind of that you kind of don't necessarily pick up that you're being that's kind of layered in there at first, first read or first watch, perhaps. I don't know from people watching, but kind of reading, you're kind of enjoying the witty turns of phrase and and these larger-than-life characters and, and this kind of romp, as it were. And then suddenly you kind of get these smaller, quieter, emotional moments that kind of creep up on you. So, yeah, so I guess prep-wise, I kind of I focused on it very similarly. Um, but we, we weren't fortunate to have as big a rehearsal period, but... But I knew Tony's writing, so I I knew that for the favorite, there wasn't this like delve into history that they wanted us to do, and to kind of try and play a ghost of who the real person was. We're playing you're playing characters, um, and there's you know occasional historical facts enclosed, but basically, it's a story that's just given this framework or structure of what what it might have been. So that gives you a lot of freedom as an actor, and then and then and so then prep wise, you know it was. It was spending some time with the cast and the, and the directors and the different people that were coming in and out and with Tony, which was really lovely because on The Favourite, I didn't get to spend as much time with him. But then also we didn't even have the whole series of scripts when we started shooting. So it wasn't like I oh, could wow. sit there and study all of the scripts and be like, okay, this is my arc and this is how I'm going to plot it and this is how I'm yeah. going to hit every beat. It was much more about, okay, i and learning who I felt that character was and then, and then, kind of having that freedom within the prep, um, in my own mind, I guess, of of not locking myself into certain ideas and just kind of being ready to to have fun. So I did nothing. That's a that's a long way of saying I did no prep. <laughs>
1: totally easy. <laughs> Stepped on the set. I mean, you're playing this historical figure where, like, you kind of do know the end point. Like, we know what happens with Catherine the Great, um, but you know, it's it's divorced enough from history. And I think you know he has an arc, but kind of doesn't in some ways like the whole way that this works is that she's eventually going to overthrow him she sees him as petulant and useless and then like eventually gets past him so like it's he does develop over this course of the series but like keeps taking two steps forward and one step back like didn't i mean did not having the scripts in some way help do that or like did you how did you grow that throughout the series maybe
7: right well it's it's kind of one of those things where i I mean i i looked forward to the new scripts coming out because i was very excited about where tony's writing was going to take it And, and i think that's the unexpected is definitely where where he likes to lean in his writing, you can kind of, with each character, there was kind of an unexpected twist or or curveball or or just a really beautiful arc that he developed for them. Um, and so with Peter, yeah, you're right. It is that kind of two steps forward, one step back, or or he feels like he's been enlightened in some way, but hasn't really changed at all. And those are really fun, mm-hmm. fun things to play. Um, I guess it's that emotional core. The the thing about Peter is a lot of people on the page, I think, and and upon. First viewing, maybe, or when you first encounter the character, they see him as this tyrant and this buffoon, and uh, as this, I I guess, yeah, kind of a one-dimensional character in some regards. But I think the fun thing about him is actually the reverse of that is kind of delving into that psychology of how his mother tormented him and and gave him kind of this Freudian complex, and then also his father, they're walking in his his shadow and his footsteps, and and you know what the character wants, but also. What, why? Why is the way he is? He's a bizarre, offbeat <laughs> stream of conscious a lot of the time, um, and that's what makes him very fun and comedic. But also, there is this kind of layer of him that's very sweet and childlike in many ways, and and almost mm-hmm. innocent, I suppose. um He's just kind of a product of the environment in some ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't have that many people raised like Peter now, where like you know, you know from birth that you will be a king, like you know, and given kind of unfettered power in that way, but. You know, thinking about my interactions with the movie industry, like there are a lot of people who aren't as smart as they think they are, who are in big positions of power. Like, I, yeah. I wonder if there were, like, not to like name names, but like people who you see reflecting that in the current version, who maybe you could draw inspiration from. If you, anyone you've, you've encountered in your life who maybe had more power than they deserve.
7: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, not even just more, more. Yeah, I guess more power and also. Just that inflated ego and, and I mean, yeah, you're right that this industry it kind of makes false kings or whatever i don't know how you describe it, kings and queens people yeah. suddenly can can and I think it's partly that that with Peter, obviously he was born into it, but I think in the in this industry, it's more if there's too much of a a fast rise i think
1: mm-hmm. and then and
7: then and then too many too many yes people around again, so yeah, there were definitely people that I had in mind I won 't name names because. It's kind of, you don't want those to become like the, <laughs> the, the bits that are pulled from interviews and suddenly become larger than the interview or the context they were in. But it's kind of that thing of, sure, yeah, I think, and that's and that's another interesting look in, in, in this. And Tony's writing again, that kind of, it's a microscopic view of what's happening on a, a much larger scale in terms of politics, but also just in life when people get to a position of power and it's very difficult for them to then, want to or actually hear the truth and people around them to to not kind of manipulate them a little bit for their own gains or wants and needs so I mean that's the other thing for Peter he's stuck in he's stuck in the middle of this not really wanting the job but also hearing from one side this is good and the other side this is bad and then people constantly trying to trying to sway him on that and that's something that Catherine L. Fanning's characters realizes and is is very good at because she he you know they kind of develop a relationship of mutual respect and, and love and caring in a way and enjoy that tit-for-tat that they have with each other. So um, she becomes someone who's very good at getting her way with him because she's ultimately a lot smarter.
1: Yeah. I mean, you talked about how you didn't have quite the rehearsal process. You did on The Favourite, but I think you and Al Fanning had to have had time to build something there because you guys have so many of those scenes of that tit-for-tat and like the, the temperature of the room changes 10 times over the course of a scene. So what what building process did you guys get to do?
7: Uh well I, I we were very fortunate. Elle and I worked together probably eight years, nine years ago. Uh we did this uh this film called Young Ones that Jake Paltrow directed with Mike Shannon and kind Oh my Smith god, you're right.
1: Wow. Wow. Yeah, so
7: so I knew Elle and and, and we kind of had a <laughs> I mean, in that again a running theme I suppose is that I played kind of her her horrible husband who killed her father and kind of (laughs) took over the family and stuff so I guess in some ways she was already stuck in one horrible marriage with me and then (laughs) nine years later we decided to revisit with slightly more comedy but yeah so I knew Ellen and and I loved working with her that time and honestly was I mean I was obviously impressed with her and thought she was a brilliant actress then but was blown away by her in this role I just think she's She's managed to find all of the all of the grey within Catherine and, and really bring it to life and, and kind of you watch the character grow and develop in such a beautiful way and the stillness in her performance, but also the honesty and, and the comedy she brings to it as well. I think she's just nailed every single beat. And that was something that's really fun for me. I mean, I haven't seen the whole series yet. They haven't given me as much <laughs> as they've given oh you yet. Oh my god. Um, yeah, you got
1: to get that
7: password. <laughs> yeah, I've got to get. I've got, I've got to speak to whoever you're speaking to. But like, I I love what, <laughs> the episodes that I have seen. I I love watching the bits that I'm not in, that the, like Elle's storylines without me, because I just think she's phenomenal. Along with the rest of the cast, I think it's um those are the bits that I can enjoy because then I'm not watching myself and being annoyed and critiquing <laughs> myself.
1: Yeah, I always love asking actors about watching themselves because some people like avoid it completely. Some people like feel like they have to to talk about it. Where, where do you land? Do you try to avoid watching yourself if you can?
7: Uh, yeah, I try. I, I don't enjoy it. It depends. It's, it's kind of one of those things where I kind of end up doing it as some sort of self torture, I guess, or something. I don't I don't, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't look forward to it. I'm not like, oh yeah, look at me go. I, I kind of sit there. and I'm like, oh, I could have done that. But then I also am trying to become better at being able to step outside of it a little bit and kind of assess it from a technical point of view not necessarily the acting but just so I can see what was working what wasn't because it's an odd thing I suppose I was speaking to another actor recently about this how you kind of sometimes feel you know portraying a certain emotion or whatever it might be or you, you feel honestly that you're playing that beat for what it what is the truth of it I suppose and then sometimes you look at it back and you go oh that's not what was captured or that's not Hmm. Or, so, so, so sometimes it can be handy, I guess, to be able to be objective about it in a way. But, um, but it's very difficult to do that because <laughs> but, yeah. um, and the, the, the nice thing sometimes about watching things back is it brings back other memories that aren't on screen. You know, you can see a yeah, scene. Yeah, like and, what
1: you did the day, and like yeah, and you can be like, like oh, that yeah,
7: that that was funny because actually that was happening behind the scenes. All this, and I remember yeah. that day. So, so, so there can be nice things about watching back, and then there can be horrible, painful things of watching it and being like, oh, that's not what I wanted it <laughs> to be. Oh, they they didn't do that. I didn't do this. So you know, it becomes. And oh, sorry, the other the question you did, I didn't answer was for Elle and I rehearsal wise. We didn't we didn't really get much rehearsal, but but I know that we did. I know we both really looked forward to those scenes because Tony would write these beautiful, yeah, as you say, kind of five, six-page scenes that would, would flip back and forth in, in the dynamic between the two characters. And and, the, and those are the scenes that we I know that we both looked forward to playing the most, I think, because there would be that real kind of struggle and I think a slight comp- competitiveness between us like really (laughs) well-natured but at the same time there's kind of like the characters have we but Elle and I both work you know in very similar ways we turn up as, as prepared as possible but like uh prepared to have fun and kind of do our thing and I think we enjoyed kind of pushing each other and seeing where we could take those scenes um the only time we really rehearsed I guess was the final block because there's two big scenes in the final block um, mm-hmm. that were both about six or eight pages and I think with those there's a lot going on just physically in terms of attacking each other and this and that and, and so those yeah. those ones we kind of just blocked out we didn't rehearse to the point where we were like this is what we want to shoot but we just kind of went through physically how it was going to be staged because otherwise just in terms of the time we'd have to shoot them each day we'd, we wouldn't have got it done.
1: Yeah, I assume that kind of thing. You've made enough gigantic technical movies that I mean, you, when you're blocking out a, a scene with a single person in a room, it's like, oh yeah, that's 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 important enough to block.
7: I mean, sometimes yeah, and then and sometimes you're like, there's so, it's it's a, one of those odd things where there's so many options, and you read through those scenes and there's so many <laughs> yeah. so, so much going on where you go, it could be this and it could be that, and then happy, yeah, it's almost it's almost like like having the time's a luxury and it's great and you kind of can can explore those ideas, but. Also, there's there's something great about not having time, and just being like the first instinct is what what you go with.
1: Yeah, more like in Mad Max when it's like, well, ten people are gonna be flying in the background behind you, so you can't do anything different than exactly what you have to do because it's gonna cost. Well, yeah, $1, that, that $1 becomes
7: yeah, that becomes very different because that's so so stunt specific as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, you were talking previously something about, you know, playing this guy who's, you could be a one-dimensional villain. And you've been on this interesting run of villains lately, like not only bad guys, but like True History of the Kelly Gang is out now. And I think that character and Peter might might get along or try to kill each other one way or another. Um, and I'm, I'm like curious about what, if, if you're finding anything personally in playing these kind of despicable characters who I think what you're doing is such a great job is finding people inside them. Um, and if, if that provides a particular challenge that you like, or if that's just kind of how the how it's turned out.
7: Um, it's, it's kind of how it turns out, I guess. And maybe, I, maybe I just, maybe I just am those characters. <laughs> it's, uh, no, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's odd because yeah, there's a lot of times that I read scripts and, and kind of, I don't know, the the nice guy role or whatever it might be. There's, there's, there's not something that I find interesting about it. I do, and I do enjoy, re- I find these characters very fun to play. That mercurial kind of Machiavellian side to them, I, yeah uh that naughtiness i I don't know there's something about them that I'm like oh it, it intrigues me, I suppose, but I'm also like, oh, I like breaking it apart a little bit and and just seeing where you can find the good in them and and why why they are I guess that way, so yeah, but i'm always I guess I'm always trying to just do different different roles and work with good filmmakers, and yeah, with the Kelly gang just. I'm such a fan of Justin Cozzell's work that I was like, go down there and, and, and have fun and see how he works for, for a few weeks. That looks seemingly. like being
1: in the actual Wild West. Like, that movie is so, like, visually striking and, like, with the cast that you guys are, that you're with and, like, there's so much high drama in it. It's a, such a fascinating movie.
7: Yeah, it's beautiful how it's shot. And, it, I mean, it was. It was the Australian outback. It was, you know, Wangaretta, miles from anywhere. And it was. And, and again, that was something that Justin was focusing on. That is that kind of, how that land and that and that environment kind of turns people crazy, like that that environment just taking someone over and destroying them and beating them and I guess that's partly what that off Fitzpatrick was you know he'd been put on this outpost and defeated and worn down, and all those things,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, in the great, like, there's, I don't know how much of it's accurate, honestly, but, like, there are things, like, with the severed heads of Swedes on the dinner plate, you're like, yeah, that does seem like something that these, like, batshit royals would have done. Was there anything, like, that when you were in the middle of filming it being like, holy shit, this is way over the top, and I can't believe I'm witnessing this in real life?
7: A part of the shoot that I really loved was going, there's, there's an episode where we, where we go to Sweden, well, we don't go to Sweden, we go to a dacha, Um, to negotiate peace with the Swedish king and queen. And and that was Mm -hmm. a section that I I really enjoyed because it's set up that obviously throughout the series and also you expect the king of Sweden to be someone that you hate, but then actually you meet him and, and he's kind of, a carbon copy of Peter in many ways and they get along like a house <laughs> on fire and Freddie Fox was yeah. was fantastic to do those scenes with so that was that was a section of shooting that I really enjoyed um you know what something that I wasn't involved with that I'm looking forward to seeing that that was very dark but funny was was when um was when Catherine and Aunt Elizabeth go to the front um they go to the, mm-hmm. the war front and um and and greet the soldiers and there's kind of some very dark humor in amongst that with Catherine handing out macaroons to the soldiers to try and lift yeah. their spirits, which I, I wasn't part of that shooting, but I'm looking forward to seeing that. And then the other memory that flashes up is, is this dance routine we did where Peter's decided to wear a skirt to help air circulate around because he's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of, yeah, strange dance routine that Elle and I were doing. That, that <laughs> pops to <laughs> mind. Me they, dance, dancing yeah. around in a grand ballroom in a skirt is not something that I I'm expected to be doing.
1: Um, okay, one last question for you. Um, I started following on Instagram because of this video you posted on, like, day three of lockdown. Let's take to Katy Perry. Um, and your Instagram oh, yeah. is really, like, that's kind of, like, the most, you know, close-up at home Instagram you posted. Like, mostly it's other more professional stuff. So I'm, I'm curious about what, what made you decide to do that and if there's more stuff like that coming.
7: Um, I don't know. I think it was – I was just saying like, it was the beginning of quarantine. I was like, well, I guess people are going to be bored and – I'll, I'll just throw this up. like I've got like loads of videos like that. And originally the plan was I was like, oh, I'm going to keep on just all this stuff that I've got lurking on my phone. I'll, um, <laughs> I'll, I, I, I make a lot of weird videos like that, I guess, on set when I'm bored in my trailer. Um,
1: <laughs> but you decided not to keep posting them?
7: Uh, yeah, then I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And i like, what am I doing? Instagram? It's, it's, it's an odd place, and I get quite... There's that weird thing, isn't there, with Instagram, where there's that rush of like, oh, getting likes, and it's like, yeah, 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 but then, but then also the the anxiety that comes with that and the stress of posting it and like, what are you gonna write and all this sort of stuff actually, like, it takes me so much time. So I'm like, <laughs> that I'm like, it's not, it's not worth the struggle from my end on on some yeah. levels. Um, but I've got, I've got more, I've got more from the favorite, I've got more from the great. I, I, maybe I'll post a couple more before this is over because it seems like the time that people might enjoy them i don't know um
1: it's definitely like like the internet content has really been booming but you're right that you have to like decide how much you want to like open yourself up and like and want that validation or it might be easier just to stay away entirely
7: yeah it's not it's an odd thing uh, like it's uh, yeah and like i don't know it's kind of i was chatting to a friend yesterday about how isolation or whatever it's become is is kind of Almost becoming a competition of who can be the most productive and who can do the funniest stuff and who can do this and who can do that. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know. I, like most of the time, I'm just sitting around or like taking care of my little boy and being with family and chilling. And like, it's not not being that productive or not doing anything
1: no. hugely exciting no, think... that anyone
7: else is doing. I sit a bit bored. I watch tell you or read a book or play some play PlayStation and hang out with them and cook and clean and that's kind of it, you know.
1: Yeah. I think the rule for anyone with kids is that getting through the day with everyone kind of happy and in one piece is the is the bar we're setting for ourselves. So don't <laughs> be too,
7: don't be too hard on yourself. That's honestly the truth. I see some of my friends who don't have kids and they're like doing all these like crazy things, and I'm like, I'm like honestly like yeah, if we can just keep the house in one piece and not with yeah. paint covered from his paint set and whatever else everywhere, <laughs> then.
1: Yeah, everyone can do their quarantine binge watches and uh, reading books and whatever. We're just uh, we're just trying to feed everybody and go to bed on time.
7: Yeah, yeah, and then just crash. But that's what I, that's what I said. I mean, I guess I kind of said at the beginning is that this is my prime time for chatting because it's before like I've got worn out <laughs> and crash crash at the end of the day.
1: Please, please go use those brain cells uh, for the rest as long as we have got them <laughs> today. And um, and thank you again. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for doing the video on Zoom recording the audio and for making it great all those things no
7: no, of course thank you very much for taking the time and having a chat i'm chris murphy
4: i'm richard lawson
0: and i'm hillary busis we are from vanity fair still watching podcast next up we're watching the new hbo show the regime
4: madam chancellor let's keep the gloves on this is not a confrontation we're just saying what's true Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux-European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching
0: week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way.
4: New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.
1: Okay, Joanna, you got on the phone with Patti Lapone, which is a crazy sentence to say. And uh, I was nervous for you, but it sounds like it went really well.
5: I was so nervous because I loved her for so long she's Um, like Mount
1: Rushmore like it's crazy that you can just talk to her on the phone I didn't I
5: refrained from telling her that I played Reno Sweeney uh, in Anything Goes in 8th grade and that I had like that cast album memorized I didn't tell her that um but we did talk we talked about obviously Hollywood this uh, series she's on with Ryan Murphy how this is this is a role she's never been the kind of role she's never been offered uh, in her life uh, is the way that she put it and that of course is something that Ryan Murphy has done a great job of uh, in his television career is highlighting these incredible actresses and giving them something new to do so we talked about that we talked about how quarantine's treating her we talked about the Sondheim concert a little bit I don't know if you've seen the tours that she's been giving of her basement on Twitter, but they're incredible. (laughs) It's been fantastic. We talked about that and we talked about uh, company. This is something that, um, you know, Richard uh, talked about a little bit back when we were talking about the way in which the COVID pandemic was affecting Broadway. There's this great uh, gender swapped uh, production of Company that Patty LuPone was in in London. I got to see it in London. Um, And it was supposed to open in New York right now. And uh, they are on hold. But she says, you know, she has some good news uh, for us about that and the future of that production and the hope that it will eventually open on Broadway. So let us hear from, oh my gosh, on this podcast, Patty (laughs) LuPone. Music I was was interested by a a quote I saw from one of your uh, co-stars, Samara Weaving. She was talking about when you were on the set of Hollywood, how much work she felt you did to keep the mood up and happy and everyone having a great time in between takes. And I'm wondering when you're the lead of a show like you are in Hollywood or, or even a stage show, if you feel that responsibility, like you're some kind of morale team leader in addition to the performance that you do.
6: You know what? I was having the, the best time on Hollywood, and so it was, not, it was not hard to keep happy or to be happy. And I suppose if, if you exude happiness other people... It's infectious. Happiness is infectious, right? It's, and, and we have a wonderful company in the cast of Hollywood, and they I don't think anybody wanted to be depressed or anybody pulled attitude. Everybody was just really, really lovely and upbeat, and so it was easy to be happy. And, but the lead, you know, when you're called a leading lady, in, primarily for the stage, because that's where I come from, it is a responsibility to set a tone. It absolutely is a responsibility. And you've heard, I'm sure you've heard of people being real deeds and people, you know, not being happy on a set or not being happy backstage, and you've heard of just the opposite. And so it's the responsibility of the leading players, both the man and the, the woman, to set a tone. Yeah. And hopefully this, the tone they set is going to be one that then, then translates onto the stage. So that what the audience is seeing is joy and happiness. And You know what I mean? Not, not, you can tell when, when there's a happy cast and, you, and when there's not a happy cast. You can just tell. And that depends on you know that depends that excuse me that starts at the very beginning that starts with your producer, then your general management, then your company management, then your stage management, and your director, and then it bleeds down to the leading players. Once you know everybody's gone, basic.
5: I'm curious how you reacted when you found out that your role in this show was the leading, the central role um, of this particular TV series.
6: Well, it didn't start out that way. When Ryan offered me the role, I thought it was going to be some, something along the same lines as Pose, where what I had to do was uh, relatively important, but it was not you know, necessarily... It, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the lead player, and he said it to me. I think we were on episode three when we shot the scene. or oh, Excuse me, we didn't reshoot it, but we shot the scene, the first scene with, with David Cornsweat where I, I go and I say, I want, to, I want to go to Dreamland, and then I take him to the Beverly Hills hotel, and that's when Ryan told me that he was going to make me the leading lady of it. And I was thrilled and surprised and grateful. And I didn't know what that was going to entail because we got the scripts as, you know, we, we got episode one, we shot episode one, and like on the second to last day of episode one, we got episode two. So I didn't know what the trajectory of my character would be, except for his pitch, uh, so you know you, you don 't know how much you 're going to get you don 't know how how, much, um, how many scenes you 're going to have to play and it was terrific it was i 've never had a role like this on film, so i 'm really, really grateful to ryan
5: there 's this moment um, that your character has where she 's talking to sort of the the uh, the young idealistic actor right and she she says sort of cynically, "So movies, you think they matter." And uh, you know he launches into this speech about why they do but um I'm curious you know right now we're we're getting so much out of the various bits and bobs of of entertainment of of people streaming at home of you giving tours of your basement of whatever it is right now we who are stuck at home uh, do like how much do you think entertainment does matter right now specifically most of all
6: it always matters you know I I, I just said this recently that in this particular dysfunctional, evil administration that we are suffering through, art, the two words, art and culture, have not been mentioned. And they are inherent rights in human nature. Mm. It, it, They're inherent rights to our soul. So I think this outpouring of, of, of people creating on the Internet, first of all, is their desire to give, a desire to keep creating, um, and it's necessary. People need it. It's compromised because it's, you know, there's no interaction, really. But when I see, you know, the the, 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 the court de Ballet of, of the Paris ballet, it's uplifting. It sort of transcends the world we're living in right now, and it's, it's extremely important.
5: One uh, of the you know many performances that you've done uh, since we've all been in lockdown um, that I responded particularly to is this A-Step Benefit Sondheim concert. I, w- I wanted to ask you about um, your song choice. Anyone Can Whistle is such a beautiful song and um, and such a beautiful show and a show that I think doesn't get as much love. But I was so delighted to see how many people in that concert picked a song from Anyone Can Whistle because it seems like a favorite of people who do have done so much Sondheim. Can you talk about your pick of that song out of all the songs?
6: Well, it's, I almost started to weep when you brought it up. It's, it, it affects me deeply, that song. And it really exposes Steve's soul, but then what, what song that he wrote doesn't. <laughs> um, but it, it's so simple. And in my case, it's so true for me. You know what I mean? I, I'm, I may appear to be a strong individual but I'm vulnerable and intimidated and scared like everybody else and that song really speaks to me and when they asked me to do it that was that's what came to mind and I've done a lot of Sondheim material and been in several of the shows but and I've been in Anyone Can Whistle but I didn't play the nurse I played uh, Cora Hoover Hooper and I wanted to sing Anyone Can Whistle because of, of how it affects me it's it's a failed show. It's, it's that's right. the weirdest show. Anyway. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'm curious, you know, you, you have done so many iconic stage roles. Uh, is it more fun for you at this point in your life to originate a role or to reinterpret a role that someone has already done?
6: I think it's more fun to originate. Yeah, I think it's more fun to originate. Because I was thinking about war paint and how yeah. much fun we had. hard work it was. For both Christine and I to make sure that that, that w- what we knew of the characters from our research got into the script, and it was an incredibly collaborative, creative team. Doug Wright was so um, accepting of our of, of, of our information, and so stuff that, that he didn't put in that we wanted him to put in, he put in. It's, and I can't speak for Christine, but I can my my scene where my last big number, "Forever Beautiful." There were certain things that, that did, the scene didn't make any sense to me before the song. We had to figure out how to marry the two. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came up with some information for Doug, and he put it in. The creators trusted the two actresses that they put into these roles. And they trusted them to give the, to give the right information. And we did. And... I mean, it gave us confidence to give the right information. Do you know what I mean? It's like you can be considered valuable mm-hmm. or not. And if you're considered valuable, then you have more trust in yourself. And if you have more trust in yourself, then you can speak more clearly. And that's what happens with Warpaint.
5: For something like Hollywood, which is this, um, I've heard you use the word faction, fact and fiction, sort of blended together, how much does historical research, like you, know, like you did with Warpaint, how much is it helpful to look into the true history of that era in Hollywood, and how much does it get in the way of, of embarking on this what-could-have-happened sort of mission? Well,
6: the only research that I did was reading Irene Selznick, uh, autobiography, a private view. I haven't read the Scotty Bowers book, and um, I didn't. You know, we only get the episodes. We don't get all ten of them or all all seven of them at once. To read it like a play,
5: right?
6: We read. We got the first episode. We shot that. Then we got the second episode, and we shot it. So I didn't know where we were going with my character or with anybody else's character. And so I wasn't. I'm. I'm. I like to just be responsible for what's on the page. And then what research I need to do for my character was, when Ryan said it was loosely based on, very loosely based on Irene Selznick, who was the daughter of Louis B. Mayer and married David O. Selznick. So she was right at the very beginning of Hollywood. And the book is, is, is spectacular. And that gave me a lot of information about a period of time. But she was there in the 20s and 30s, I think probably into the 40s a little bit. So this was when Hollywood was really established, when we... When we when we shoot this Hollywood. And I didn't do anything except look for old Hollywood when I was driving around. <laughs> <laughs> and I found it. I found a lot of it.
5: I've, I find myself watching, watching this show and imagining sort of confrontations I've had in my own professional career where I wish people you know, more progressive minded people had been in charge of the decisions and sort of the defeats that I had had over my career and how much nicer it would have been to have someone else uh, in charge, which is sort of what this series envisions. Is that something that you thought about?
6: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. People that were less fearful of their jobs. Mm, Yeah. You know what I mean? People, I mean, I think that, that, that that's a lot to do with, it. they could be male or they could be female, but if they're afraid of their position, of losing their position, that fear shows. And then that fear is, is it permeates everything. And I just wish there were people that had more generosity of spirit, that encouraged, you know, their uh, subordinates as opposed to abuse, discourage, uh, disregard. I've had a lot of that in my career. A lot of that. You, that's what you have to survive. You know that's what that's what creates that tough outer shell. Those people.
5: <laughs> <laughs> how much do you feel like? <laughs> how much do you feel like fear is still a factor in the halls
6: of power um, in in Hollywood? Well, I don't know too much about Hollywood because my you know my career is primarily on the stage. Mm-hmm. It was not mm-hmm. evident when we shot Hollywood. It was not evident at all. There was nothing but collaboration and. And happiness, and you know the cast was copacetic. The crew had, you know, Ryan assembles, holds on to people. He, people that worked on our show have been working with Ryan between ten and twenty years. So there was shorthand among the crew. You know, the camera operators and the dolly grips and the gaffers and the grips—they all knew each other. So the set was incredibly efficient. The directors had worked with him before, so they were great. We had great directors. Everybody knew each other, basically. I was a newcomer onto the set, except I've worked with him four times before, or this made the fourth. But this was a, a nucleus of Hollywood uh, crew members that worked with Ryan. There was none of that there. There was a ton of that on Life Goes On for four years mm-hmm. that I did. Right. A ton of fear. And um, I, let me see, I'm trying to think of other things. There was, there was no fear on Driving Miss Daisy, Or on Witness, those two films I shot with the two Australian directors I worked with, Bruce Beresford, Bruce Beresford, and um, Peter Weir. But I'm trying to think where else I may have experienced it. On stage, I get it a lot. I, I I don't know whether it's because theater is the forearm of the entertainment industry, and you know, money is money. I don't know. Um, But I've experienced it more in theater than I have on 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 film.
5: You mentioned that you've never had a, a role like this on film before. What aspect of it, of this particular character, you know, proved the biggest challenge for you? Something, something new uh, to tackle that, that might have been tough nothing. in any way. Nothing, nothing. Excellent. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I just relish the fact I had something to do. <laughs> Well, then what, what, what brought you the most joy, the most pleasure in
6: doing it? Oh, God, all of it. All of it. The costumes, working with Rob, working with Dylan, working with some, working with everybody. Anybody. You know, one of my favorite teams I have to say, was just right out of some... It was Joe Montello, Holland Taylor, Harriet Harris, and me. And it was like, it looked like it could have been a Broadway play. It was like so <laughs> Four actors, um, you know, who, you know, cut their teeth on the stage were all in this one scene together. Harriet played Eleanor Roosevelt. And it was a joy. You know when it's a joy? When, when people leave, when they wipe their feet at the door and they come in and they just, they're, they're happy to be there. And, 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 and it shows in the work. And that's what we had on Hollywood. Everybody was happy to be there. And everybody brought their A game.
5: I was um, fortunate enough to see you and Company in London, um, you know, uh, two Christmases oh, ago, wow. and you were incredible, obviously. And um, and I know the uh, the production is on hold right now. Um, uh, for Broadway lovers, what what are the conversations you're having with with your cast and crew of, of the company, um, the Broadway production of Company?
6: Well, we have we have these little Zoom meetings on Thursdays at you know between 4:30 and 5, so the Brits can join us, Marianne and Chris and Simone, who's uh, Liam and Simone, who are the choreographer and associate choreographer. Who are uh, Simone's in Australia, so it's very early in the morning for her, but it's um, you know 10 or 11 o'clock at night for Chris, Marianne, and Liam, our choreographer. And it's done it as as line throughs. But there's this expression, don't leave it in the dressing room, which means don't leave the performance in the dressing room. So I kind of backed away from them because we don't know when we're returning. And whenever we do, at this point, we're going to have to go back into rehearsal. So they've turned into sort of games, cocktail parties, Zoom meetings. And yesterday we had one and we played bingo. (laughs) Fun. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, We played bingo. And it's just, you know, we will come away from this with a story. You know, some productions you just do and and you just do them. And then there are some that have history. Um, You know, Noises Off had 9-11. And this one will have the pandemic. Um, We will look back at this time and go, wow, we went through that. And we did the show. If the show comes back, when the show comes back. I mean, they say we will come back because we have, uh, we had an advance, we have, um, Chris got very good. Chris Harper got coverage for, uh, insurance coverage for a pandemic, as well as force majeure. Go figure that one. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Wow. Yeah. 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 I couldn't believe it. So the question is when we're coming back, when will it be safe to bring live theater back, and I don't think that's going to happen for a long
5: time. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, obviously, your your big song in Company is, uh, you know, is a song usually sung by a woman. But given the gender flip concept of this production of Company, I was wondering if you, if you had any thoughts on what other shows need a gender flip so you get to play a role you've always wanted to play uh, that you haven't gotten to because it was written for a man.
6: I don't know. I like all the female roles and uh, this you know you saw it did you ever see have you seen company before you saw yes. the gender flip okay okay so how do you feel about the flip
5: i love the flip i love the flip because it really right. it um it's a flip with a purpose right it, it it gives new meaning to a show that you thought you already understood um when you see it i was thinking of You you could drive a person crazy, number especially. Thinking about that framed as about a woman rather than a man makes it sound so different. Uh, In addition to everything, all the anxieties that Bobby's feeling about being single and being older, all of that feels different. Right. So, yeah. Yeah,
6: it's more poignant. Yeah. Because women get asked that question all the time. There's nothing wrong with a guy, 35 years old, boinking beautiful women and not married. But a woman, we're asked the question all the time when are you going to get married? i think it's more powerful and more poignant with a woman in the role of bobby and i love the internal flips that she did you know the gay couple instead of amy and paul making jamie and paul and i love the fact that i don't when i did this with the new york Phil, with Neil patrick harris i want to play joanne i didn't i didn't understand why joanne says to bobby when are we going to make it I I I just didn't. There was nothing that led up to that relationship that she could then say, "When are you and I going to go to bed? You go to bed with everybody else." So I never understood that. And so and then Marianne did the flip where she she I, she talked to Steve and said, "Have you know? I give Larry away as opposed to me wanting to have that." Katrina actually asked me, "Did they ever explore a possibility of a lesbian relationship where Bob where?" Uh, Joanne says to Bobby, "When are we going to make it?" And I said, "No, I don't think they ever did. They did explore a lesbian relationship someplace else. I think the lesbian relationship was going to be the Amy and Paul, mm. and then they made two guys. But she then flipped, instead of me saying to her, "When are, when are we going to make it?" she said, "When are you going to make it?" with Larry, basically, and gave Joanne power to be in control of the situation before she feared Larry would leave her. So I, I, it it gave Joanne a little more power too, a little more depth—not uh, power, but depth—more, um, which I thought was great. Um, and and I think that the visual of this production is extraordinary,
5: incredible. Well, I, I'm I'm really uh, I'm really I don't know when, but I am so glad to hear you say that it it will be when and not if. And I'm really excited for my friends in New York to get to see it uh, as well. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And my last question for you, as, as we are watching you do Mammoth and Sondheim and Tour Your Basement and all the various things you're doing to keep us entertained uh, in this pandemic, <laughs> uh, what, what are you watching uh, that's keeping you entertained uh, in all this?
6: I'm watching Babylon Berlin, My Brilliant Friend, Penny Dreadful, Grace and Frankie. I'm catching up on Grace and Frankie. I have... And I'm reading, I finished uh, Lydia Davis's new translation of Madame Bovary. And I'm reading Beautiful Ruins now. Oh, and I am, yeah. this is my favorite. I, my musical director, uh, Joel Fram, I'm in his class. It's just Joel and me. <laughs> <laughs> He's writing dissertations on Mahler symphonies. And he tells me what I'm about to listen to and how it came to be. And then I'm I'm on I listen and then I listen to the symphony and because I love Mahler but I don't know a lot about Mahler, and I listen to Symphony Number Two, and I sent him what I thought about it. And the next one will be Symphony Number Three. So that's really I feel like I'm learning something, and I feel like I'm engaged in something. That's my problem right now: structure yeah. and motivation.
5: Yeah. Well, one, one for Mahler it is then and uh, we will we will <laughs> do our best to keep busy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the chat. One
6: for Mahler is right, Joanna. Thank you.
1: That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Um, the poll is still up for our rewatch for next week, but it's looking like it's going to be Sense and Sensibility which, uh, spoiler alert, I'm the one who's never seen it. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think you've all chosen well for our quarantine viewing. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, and where we're writing lots of things. You can find us on Twitter at little men, which is also where you can see these polls where we're uh, asking you to help pick our rewatches as we're going to be moving into our new series, which is blind spots for all of us. Eventually we will make you guys force us to watch unforgiven Just keeps not winning the poll, but we'll get there. Eventually uh, you can find us on Twitter on our own. I met Katie rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Weimar Baby 69. (laughs) (laughs) This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.
4: And this week's award for the best alternate title for this podcast goes to Katie Rich.
1: So many Oscars!
5: I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers...
0: It starts in Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy
1: love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two.
5: Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.